Well, what do you do when tragedy strikes? When your world is turned upside down? When grief settles in because of loss? The series Chris mentioned earlier that we're in conversations with Jesus. We began with a conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus and talked about dealing with religion. Last week, it was a conversation with a woman of Samaria dealing with emptiness. And today, we consider a conversation with two women who experienced tragedy in the illness and death of a beloved brother. The text of the conversation you just heard comes from John's Gospel, chapter 11. And we'll look at the tragedy that they faced in the biblical record. And then if you'll bear with me, I'd like to jump out of the text and just talk a little bit in general terms about how you and I need to deal with loss, need to deal with tragedy in our lives. You have to admit, this is one of the most spectacular stories in the gospel accounts. It's a story that's filled with pathos, it's uncertainty. Um, yes, it has a happy ending, but you really don't know that till the end. John 11 begins by telling us that Lazarus, Jesus' friend, is sick. And his sisters, Mary and Martha, send word to him. From the information that comes later, we can surmise that Lazarus is pretty bad off. And so Mary and Martha set their hopes on Jesus. They, they, they apparently know where Jesus is, and so they send this message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. And faced with the dire circumstance of life, they reach out to Jesus to intervene on their behalf. And here's the beginning point where we're faced with uncertainty and potential of a tragedy. How appropriate that they would seek out Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves, to whom do you turn when you're faced with such a thing? Mary and Martha know that there's little or nothing that they can do. Uh, their message is filled with concern. It's filled with the hope that maybe Jesus can do something to help. So can, can you kind of picture yourself in their shoes? When the message reaches Jesus, he says to his disciples something that at least initially and on the surface seems a bit strange. Let's go to the text. If you have a Bible, I want to turn to John chapter 11. If you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 1141. John chapter 11. Verse 4, Jesus hearing the message that came from Lazarus' sisters, said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. There are always two different ways of viewing things, aren't there? I mean, there's the human perspective that focuses on the situation, on the circumstances, on the details. And there's also the divine perspective. The eternal perspective, God's perspective. You know, one focuses on circumstance, the other focuses on purpose. And in each situation, it seems that we face are these two perspectives. One's the circumstance itself, and that, that's probably natural, necessary. It's okay to be human. You know, whenever called to deny reality, only that we are need to see beyond the human dimension to purpose. 
And that's the second perspective. It's God's divine purpose. The eternal God who's at work in us has this overarching purpose in our lives. There's direction, there's intention, there's determination in everything. That's why the Apostle Paul could write to the Romans and says, but we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It does not say all things are good. It simply says that this eternal God with an eternal purpose is going to work good together, whether we see it or not, understand it or not. So God uses everything that comes into our lives, whether he permits it or he causes it, and he will use it for our ultimate good, for his ultimate glory. See, we need to understand that there's a greater reality than what we can see. There is something better. There's something far beyond everything in this life. And so Jesus says that this sickness is not unto death. Does that mean that Lazarus is not going to die? No, because we know he does die. But it is that there's something greater than the physical outcome of Lazarus' illness. I think we often fall into a theological trap when we define God's glory in terms of physical outcome. And so if God intervenes and changes the anticipated outcome, then we're quick to give glory to God. But if he doesn't intervene in the natural process, sometimes we go into theological shock. Then we can't figure it out. You know, our faith is shaken, sometimes even to the core. But you see, our problem is that we view God's glory and is, is, is really our view of God and his glory and not understanding. So we need to be careful about the conclusions we draw based on limited understanding of what is happening in the context of this life only. So Jesus receives this message that Lazarus is sick. And look at his response, chapter 11, verse 6. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. The big question is why? There are probably three things that may come to bear. Maybe there's a part of all of them here. First of all, Lazarus was probably already dead by the time the message got from Jesus to Jesus. Verse 39 tells us that Lazarus has been dead four days. Now, the journey to Jesus from Bethany would hardly have taken a day. So the four days can be accounted for by allowing one day for the messengers to travel, uh, two days for Jesus to wait, and then a day for him to travel back. There's your four days. So most likely, Lazarus is dead by the time the message gets to Jesus. The second thing we see in Jesus' delay is that he's not moved by external forces. There are two other times earlier in the gospel that we see that he's driven only by the determination to do God's will. And so in John 2, remember the wedding at Cana, in John 7 with the Feast of Tabernacles, but in all three, people were encouraging him, urging him to go do something. First, his mother in Cana, his brothers and sisters in, at the Feast of the Tabernacles, and now uh, with Mary and Martha. So in all three, their request was refused. Uh, in all three, Jesus in the, in the end did what was suggested. But it's very clear that what he did, he did in God's time, in God's way, and according to God's will. He would not be forced to move except for that. 
The third thing I see is interesting because burial usually took place right after death. And the four days then becomes very significant. There was a Jewish belief that the soul stayed near the grave for three days, hoping to return to the body. One rabbinic statement said, for three days after death, the soul hovers over the body, intending to re-enter it, but as soon as it sees its appearance change, it departs. In line with this, the Mishnah, which was the, the written record of, of Jewish oral history and, and law, states that, the, that evidence for the identity of a corpse could only be given through three days after death. On the fourth day, the soul that's hovering nearby sees decomposition beginning and finally leaves. So if this view were held now as early as the events of John chapter 11, it would mean that the time had been reached where the only hope for Lazarus was divine action, not anything else, not any idea or superstition or belief. So two days after word comes about Lazarus, Jesus says to a small band of disciples, let's go to Bethany. Again, I'm struck by the fact that Jesus didn't step in to stop the circumstances. He says that there's a greater thing here than Lazarus' illness. Why? I think it is because these folks with him are going to see the glory of God. And they're going to see God at work. And Jesus will demonstrate that he is Lord even over circumstances. The scene shifts to Bethany. And Martha hears of the approaching Jesus. She goes out to meet him and expresses the anguish that perhaps every one of us has felt sometime in our life. Lord, if only you'd been here. Can you resonate with that? Maybe some of you are faced with a circumstance right now and you're thinking, Lord, if you were only here now. Martha expresses her belief in Jesus' power to do something. And Jesus responds with Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha takes those words in the ultimate sense of the final resurrection. And then Jesus takes this opportunity to lay out this marvelous, marvelous statement. Look at it. It's in verse 25 of chapter 11. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Martha responds and says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. You know what we have here? We have a confession of untested faith. Untested faith. It'll soon be put to the test. Mary now enters the action, and her assessment is the same as Martha's. Lord, if only you had been here. Would you notice that Jesus is not bent out of shape by their questioning? He doesn't come out of his sandals because somehow they're not expressing this great trust in him. You know, Jesus can handle your expressions of disappointment and discouragement and despair. It does not diminish his lordship. It does not diminish his character. It does not diminish his work. Now, in the text, verses 33 to 38, provide a profound look at the scene behind the scenes. Let's, let's look at it, starting in verse 33. When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. 
And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not? Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Try to picture it, can you? Some, sometimes, particularly in the Gospels, you just need to kind of close your eyes and envision this scene. Um, what you have is family, friends, and neighbors, acquaintances that have all come to participate in this public mourning. Verse 33 says that Mary was weeping. The word in the original language of the New Testament means a loud wailing, a loud weeping. The habit of the day was to express grief in an unrestrained, even boisterous way. So just imagine this cacophony of, of different voices weeping and wailing. That's what's going on here. Now, if Jesus, it is said that he was deeply moved the word, again, in the original language of the New Testament is also translated groaned. It's a very powerful, uh, descriptive word. It means a loud, inarticulate noise. Its proper use was that of the snorting of horses. And when it's used of humans, it usually denotes anger. A, a deep emotion of anger. Jesus was angry. What was he angry about? Well, I, I think it's death itself that produced this response. Jesus was angry at death. I think he's angry at the consequence of sin, which brings about death. Now, listen, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't grieve someone's passing. That's, don't, don't draw that out of that passage. It's just that we do not recognize death as the ultimate enemy and the ultimate act of one's life. Then Jesus goes and he stands before Lazarus' tomb and the text says that he wept. The word wept is a different word than what's used for Mary and the Jews. The word used of them was this loud demonstrative wailing and weeping. The word used here and only here in your New Testament it is a very quiet weeping. Jesus didn't wail loudly, but he was deeply grieved. Over what? A couple of thoughts. One, I think he identifies with his friends in their loss. He cared. He, he hurt for them. He felt their pain. The second thing is he didn't, he didn't weep for Lazarus. He knew what he was going to do. He was going to raise his friend from the dead. But perhaps he wept because of the misconceptions that were all around him. Because of the unbelief that was so apparent at that point. And then don't miss the power of this next scene is Jesus stands before the tomb and he says, remove the stone. Wow, wouldn't you have liked to have been in the crowd uh, at that very moment? And Martha says, Lord, Lazarus is dead. And Chris reminded me that you need to read the King James here. You know, he's dead and he stinketh. <laughs> What's he going to do? You see, faith untested is faith unproved. Martha's still stuck over here. She's still stuck with Lord, you know, he's gone. And here's the test. Jesus responds, did I not tell you that you, if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Remember the statement that Jesus had made when Mary and Martha's messengers came to him? That he was going to display the glory of God? So Jesus prays to the Father. I don't think he... I think he's praying for the benefit of those around him. 
That's why he prays out loud. And uh, so they can hear what's going on. And to know that what's happening is divine in nature. It isn't some hocus pocus, some sleight of hand. It's going to be a miracle. And think about this. This demonstration of power, of, uh, power over death is going to be supremely evident in Jesus' own life. It wasn't long after this that he's arrested, illegally tried, and cruelly executed. And his body goes into the tomb and it lay there. Most of his disciples had given up hope. Good Friday, a day of mourning. But Sunday was a coming. And it would be a day that God would trump death. Death would be defeated. And God gives his final answer. So how do we deal with tragedy? When life serves up a severe blow in our lives, often in the form of a loss or some other tragedy, what do we do? Where do we go? How should we as followers of Jesus in the 21st century, uh, you know, respond to things like that in our lives? There are several things that I'd like you to consider as we wrestle with the question of where is God in the pain of loss and the tragedies in our life. Here's the first thing I would suggest. Acknowledge the pain of loss. We know loss is a part of life. Family therapist and certified trauma specialist Norman Wright says life is full of losses. In fact, life is a blending of loss and gain, loss and acquisition. And because life is all about change, we all experience losses, don't we? Some are small, some are huge. Here's some of the losses. I've just wrote down some of the losses that I think people encounter today. And, and, and you will have <clears throat> or probably will encounter one or more of these sometime in your life. There's a loss of health. I mean, regardless of how hard you try to live forever, there's a loss there. For some, it's a loss of job or job security or opportunity for advancement in your career. There's the loss of innocence through abuse, molestation. There's the loss of youth and beauty. You know, all of us have to face the reality. I'm sorry to give you the news this morning. We're getting older. I think that's why I love this piece that's titled The Perks of Being 60 Plus. I've, I've shared it before, some of you will remember, but I guess, I guess I like it because it's really true. And some of you this morning are in that club with me or you're getting closer. Here's some of the things of those perks. First of all, kidnappers are not very interested in you. <laughs> People call at 9 p.m. and ask, did I wake you? Now that one is really true. People no longer view you as a hypochondriac. You can eat dinner at 5 o'clock. You enjoy hearing about other people's operations. You sing along with elevator music. Some of you go. I love this one. Your secrets are safe with your friends because they can't remember them either. You know, there are some perks. Here are other losses we face. Loss of long-term dreams. For us, for our children, whatever. Loss of friends through a geographical move or a relational estrangement. Loss of a beloved pet. Loss of functioning skills. Loss of loved ones through death. There, there's the gut shot, isn't it? When we lose loved ones. 
But all of these experiences represent a loss of something or someone. And the loss is real. And the loss is painful. Don't deny the loss. Don't deny the pain. Don't pretend it didn't happen. It wasn't important. It didn't hurt. It did happen. It is important. And it does hurt. So acknowledge the loss in our lives. Second, and this is another step we have to take beyond acknowledging it, is grieve your loss. Ivan Illich wrote, you know there's an American myth that denies suffering in the sense of pain. It acts as if they should not be, and hence it devalues the experience of suffering. But this myth denies our encounter with reality. We must not only acknowledge our loss, we must grieve our loss. You know, it means that we work through our emotions, the feelings that are connected with the loss. Look at this from King David. He recorded his emotional response to life circumstances. In Psalm 6, he says, I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of my grief. Grieving means that we're coming to the point of accepting that things will never be the same again. They aren't. Loss means change. Uh, you know, it, it means things are going to be different. And grieving is coming to terms with that reality. So it means then to define and to accept a new reality. It means accepting that life has been affected by loss and also that life must go on in spite of the loss. Jared Sitzer lost his wife, daughter, and mother in a car accident. This is what he concluded about grief. Catastrophic loss, by definition, precludes recovery. It will transform us or destroy us, but it will never leave us the same. There's no going back to the past. It is not therefore true that we become less through loss unless we allow the loss to make us less, grinding our soul down until there's nothing left. Loss can also make us more. I did not get over my loved ones. Rather, I absorbed the loss into my life until it became a part of who I am. Sorrow took up permanent residence in my soul and enlarged it. One learns the pain of others by suffering one's own pain, by turning inside oneself, by finding one's own soul. However painful sorrow is good for the soul, the soul is elastic like a balloon. It can grow larger through suffering. Now some of you have to say, well, if I accept that, it's only by faith. And that's okay. Take it where you can at that point. Thirdly, we need to choose to trust God. There are some things that are important for us to remember and to contemplate in the pain of loss, in the tragedies of life. So let me give you four principles that I think are helpful, I hope, in wrestling the question of where is God here in the pain of loss. The first is this, affirm the conviction that God is good. The biggest challenge we face when undergoing pain, trials, tragedies, loss, any of those things, is what happens to our view of God. You know, from time to time, you'll recognize the fact that I repeat some things, especially quotes. 
Now, it's not because I've become senile, although there are days, I wonder. But it is because they are good, clear, concise thoughts that say things better than I could say. And I want you to hear them again by way of reminder. A year after he lost his beloved wife, Joy, to cancer, C.S. Lewis wrote the book, A Grief Observed. And then there he talks about the collision of faith and loss. Here's what he wrote. Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is in coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there is no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. So guard your view of God. Remember what you've learned about him in the past. Continue to affirm that he is good, that he is wise, that he is sovereign. Focus on those things that he's promised us. See, even Martha could say to Jesus, I know that he will rise on the day of resurrection. She could affirm a promise for the future, but she needed to translate that also down into the present. She would need to learn to trust God right there, right then. Someone has written a beautiful poem that I think captures the perspective that we need to have. It goes like this. God has not promised skies always blue, flower-strewn pathways all our lives through. God has not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. God has not promised we shall not know toil and temptation, trouble and woe. He's not told us we shall not bear many a burden, many a care. But God has promised strength for the day, rest for the laborer, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. I hate it when I need to live by my own words. I had a chance to rehearse my sermon last night. Uh, we were at Children's Hospital as our little granddaughter, Haley, had surgery again 11 days after they had fixed the shunt up, up in their brain ventricles. And uh, so we were up there again because there obviously was a problem. And, uh, and where I had to deal with it is when we got into the waiting room. So they took her in about seven. This procedure, it's now the fourth time she's had shunt work. Uh, the last one, the last two that have been done take about 30, 35 minutes. And so we're sitting in the waiting room uh, starting at 7 o'clock. It's now 7.30. It's 8 o'clock. It's 8.30. It's 9 o'clock. Okay, where does your mind go? Probably where mine did, right? And I found myself having to come back. Let's see, what is it that I'm preaching on tomorrow? Oh, yeah. Lord, you are good. You know, that's a struggle. You don't do it once in your life and it's done. Some of you are living with life circumstances. You've got to do that every day, right? Many, many times a day. So we continue to affirm God, even if we don't understand it, if we don't know what's happening, yet I affirm that you are good. You are wise. You are sovereign. Now, it turned out great. She just took longer to get prepped for surgery, and, and the surgery was still only 35, 40 minutes. The surgeon stayed to, to make sure she was coming out of anesthesia. Okay, that's accounted for the two hours. It was late at night. There wasn't somebody to come out and give us an update. But you know what? I didn't know that at the time. See, God doesn't necessarily whisper in our ears and says, now, it's okay, let me tell you. First of all, it took longer to get her intubated than to do that. He doesn't do that. 
And so in the midst of whatever, that's when we wrestle, don't we? And we've got to come back to what we know is true. Doesn't make it easy. Please, if you're going through it, I'm not trying to say that it's easy for you to do that. I know some of you are dealing with life circumstances far graver than I ever have, okay? But we need to affirm God is good. And I think we also need to remember this when we talk about loss. Uh, it's only the seventh inning. The game isn't over yet. Eugene Peterson writes, we are able to face, acknowledge, accept, and live through suffering, for we know that it can never be ultimate. It can never constitute the bottom line. God is at the foundation, and God is at the boundaries. See, the temptation in the midst of the pain of loss, of life tragedies, is to think that this is ultimate reality, that there's nothing beyond the pain, there's nothing beyond the loss. But we need to remember the game ain't over. And here's this. We've got to guard our heart against bitterness. Suffering, trials, loss, tragedies. They will either crush us or mold us. They're going to do one or the other. We'll either become better or we'll become bitter. Depending on how we deal with life's losses. And then learn the release of giving thanks. I, I think to me this is one of the most powerful things I've ever experienced in my life. Is learning the power of giving thanks. Throughout the Psalms, there is a recurring phrase. David, even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances, and then you keep seeing this, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. See, that reaffirms the love and the grace of God. The wrong conclusion to draw when facing tragedy is this, God doesn't care. And that's the temptation. But he does care. The greatest demonstration clearly is that of the suffering and pain as he watched his own son on the cross. The sinless dying for the sinful. So God identifies with suffering. He identifies with loss. David writes in Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. If you're dealing with tragedy today, having suffered loss, I, I want to encourage you with the words of David. I, I always go back to this from Psalm 27. David says, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. There's so much more I wish I could say on this whole subject if time permitted. But I want to leave you with two thoughts this morning. Two truths that I hope that you will think about this week. First of all, God cares. He really does. And if you've trusted in him, if you've believed in him, his promise is to provide his presence, his grace, his peace, his encouragement, all of those things in the midst of sufferings and trials. He never promises exemption from difficulties and suffering, but he does always promise his enablement. And we need to remind ourselves that he cares that he's there with us. The second thing is that we care. And God has called us as a part of the body of Christ to minister to each other in times of need. And one of the ways that we can do that is to pray for one another. I, I know that many of you pray for different ones in our, in our body when you know of what's going on in their lives. Many of you have prayed for Haley. Um, Tony Snow, some of you remember him. He was a journalist, television anchor. He was press secretary to George W. Bush in his presidency. 
But he wrote this uh, while battling cancer, a battle that he lost in July 2008. But, but, but all of said, think about this, this is, he's in the midst of the battle, and here's what he said. When our faith flags, he throws reminders in our way. Think of the prayer warriors in our midst. They change things. And those of us who have been on the receiving end of their petitions and intercessions know it. It is hard to describe, but there are times when suddenly the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and you feel a surge of the Spirit. Somehow you just know. Others have chosen when talking to the author of all creation to lift us up, to speak of us. We don't know much, but we know this. No matter where we are, No matter what we do, no matter how bleak or frightening our prospects, each and every one of us, each and every day, lies in the same safe and impregnable place in the hollow of God's hand. We need to remember that. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray this morning particularly for those who are dealing with loss, whatever shape, form it might be. For those who are dealing with tragedies in their life, for those who are dealing with things that have passed now, but things that are also present for some, Lord, would you remind them of how much you love them, how much you care for them? Would you remind them that you've promised your presence, you've promised your peace, you've promised your courage, and I pray that they would lean heavily upon you. Help us, Lord, who come alongside to know when to speak and when not to speak, what to say, how to encourage people. Lord, may we as a body just continue the wonderful ministry that we see here every day, every week, of people encouraging others. And Lord, would you continue to remind us that you are the sovereign God of the universe, that there's not a sparrow that falls to the ground that you don't know it, that you don't permit it. And so, Father, maybe we be encouraged to simply hang in there and continue to trust you in our lives. And so we commit ourselves to you for another week. In Christ's name I pray, amen.